0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. In his new collection of essays called Sublime Physics, BYU professor Patrick Madden seeks what is common and ennobling among seemingly disparate, even divisive subjects, ruminating on midlife, time, family, forgiveness, loss, originality, a Canadian rock band, and more, discerning the ways in which the natural world transcends and joins the realm of ideas through the application of a meditative mind. Patrick Madden received his bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Notre Dame and his Ph.D. in creative nonfiction from Ohio University. Interestingly, during his doctoral studies, lived in Montevideo, Uruguay, on a Fulbright scholarship or fellowship, which allowed him to investigate the Uruguayan culture and history and interview former Tupamaro revolutionaries for an essay about their 1971 Guinness World Record prison escape and returned in 2012 to finish the current book. He's also co-editor... Of an interesting volume called *After Montaigne*, in which uh, current essayists uh, use Montaigne as, as a jumping-off point. We welcome uh, Patrick Madden to the program. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks a lot for having me. Uh,
0: so, um, I want to start with uh, with with the background. Uh, you went to Notre Dame, uh, right? Mormon kid at Notre Dame. How was that?
1: When I started at Notre Dame, I was a Catholic kid, Okay. and uh, my father's a Notre Dame graduate. A little after me, my two brothers are also Notre Dame graduates, so it was expected, even encouraged through my childhood, that I would attend Notre Dame. Um, I have an uncle who's Latter-day Saint, and so I knew a little bit about the Mormon Church from him, but I also had a good high school friend, and through her, several other friends who were Latter-day Saints, and they... Got me started on the path of uh, <clears throat> investigating the church, and my junior year in college, I I joined the church.
0: Uh, while at while at Notre Dame,
1: while at Notre Dame, yeah, yeah, uh, maybe the only uh, Catholic to Mormon conversion on record there. I don't
0: know. <laughs> could could be um, physics. Uh, what's what was that journey like? Physics to to essay.
1: Um, well, I'd always been fascinated with the way the world worked, and Especially in high school when physics was largely mechanical, like Newtonian physics, it seemed like a good way of explaining things, and the world made a lot of sense. Uh, you could have clear answers to questions and predict behaviors of you know, simple systems. So I loved that aspect of physics. When I got to college, things got a lot more complex, and a lot of the work that we did and that real physicists do was kind of uh, very narrow focused and invisible. You had to collide particles in an accelerator far from you, and then see what your computer discovered upon, you know, reading whatever had uh, occurred in nanoseconds afterwards. And so I kind of thought that wouldn't be the life for me. I wanted to have more freedom to think about, you know, a variety of subjects as the curiosity struck me, and so. Eventually, I kind of hit upon the idea that if I could learn to write well, and if I could write essays, then I could <clears throat> investigate whatever was of interest to me for as long as it held my interest, and then I could go on to the next thing. So I could be a kind of amateur, not a specialist in any given subject.
0: And, and it occurs to me that, uh, you know, physics, you're you're investigating the, the universe. Uh, and, and as you say, from high school to, to college, that became more and more invisible. Uh, here's an epigraph you have at the beginning of Sublime Physics. This is Montaigne, the, I guess the, the father of essayists. He said, I study myself more than any other subject. That is my metaphysics. That is my physics. Uh, is, right. that, is that what you do? Is you, you that what all essayists do? They study themselves?
1: To a certain extent, yeah. Uh, and if, if not purely themselves, then they study the world through themselves, and they're very upfront about the fact that they are the filter through which the world comes and, you know, gets to the page. So Montaigne wrote about all sorts of subjects, and when he says he writes just about himself, he doesn't do it the way we think of today, uh, autobiographically recounting his experiences and, you know, sharing them because he thinks they're inherently important. Instead, he thought about all sorts of, you know, Greek and Roman battles and, orators and poets and um, some of the events of his times he was living during a time of great religious upheaval there were wars between protestants and catholics in france at the time so on the surface of it he's writing about a lot more than just himself but he used those external events and other people's lives in order to reflect on his own life and attempt to find a way to live the best he could so he was writing about himself, but not in the way we might think of.
0: Want to uh, maybe have you do a definition of essay? When when I think of essay, it's the it's the dreaded you know persuasive paper that uh, that I was assigned over and over again in school. I think a lot of people right. have that view of the essay. What what is the essay?
1: Yeah, I think that's a pretty common view of the essay, and I also think that's a misuse of the term. But I guess we're stuck with it probably since. Francis Bacon in early 17th century Britain, he started writing things he called essays that were kind of preachy, they tried to prove points, and um, he felt that he had wisdom to impart. But when Montaigne was writing essays, and he coined the term essay as a noun to describe his writing, he was using a definition that still exists, but we don't think of it too much, in which to essay is to test out something, to experiment, Uh, So the noun form, we often, in our classes that I teach or that I've taken, we talk about the essay as a noun, as an attempt or a trial. So he wasn't expecting to prove or to convince. Instead, he wanted to just uh, see where his mind would go and if it considered certain subjects or put certain ideas together, what would result. So when I talk about essays... I'm talking about that very free and open form, quite antithetical in its approach to the sort of dreaded, top, dreaded topic-driven assignment that we have to do in our classes. So I think it's a lot more fun, a lot more engaging, and it also gets to a lot better ideas than what we do when we're under duress.
0: As we go along, I wanna uh, tap into that fun, and there's a, there is a lot of fun. A lot of, a lot of um, rock bands appear in your you're writing I don't, I don't know if you have their albums or any it, it, there, there's a string passage where you're on the plane with any money you don't have any of his albums right. but there, there's some lyrics from uh, getty lee and from uh, um james hetfield from the uh from right. Metallica. so we'll get into that um th- i wanted to bring up this here's a review many positive reviews this one is is generally positive but he the reviewer uh, sort of takes you to task um and and, and um talks about montaigne says, Montaigne strode the countryside thinking great thoughts while Madden finds himself recalling more than once throughout his essay lyrics from rock songs and high-pitched warblings of Rush vocalist Getty Lee. I, <laughs> I guess that, that explores a range of what the essay can do.
1: Right, and uh, I, I've read that review. I, <laughs> I laugh about it, I guess. For me, uh, rock lyrics, especially Rush lyrics, uh, have greatly influenced my thinking and so from early, I don't know, when I was about 10 years old, I, I first discovered Rush. And I thought that the music was complex and intelligent. You had to think about the music as well as feel it. And the lyrics, too, engage with you know, some deep ideas about, oh, sometimes the environment, sometimes they're historical about, say, the Manhattan Project. Uh, sometimes they... <clears throat> challenge simplistic notions of faith or nationalism things like that but the lyricist for Rush Neil Peart also is a bibliophile he reads more than I do I think and I'm an English professor and so through his lyrics I found a lot a lot of allusions to works of literature and so that was my early gateway to some of the reading that I did and for a guy who was studying physics uh, my musical listenings were what were leading me to literature, so <clears throat> that 's a big part of my a part of my life the music that I listened to, and it really shaped my thinking a lot.
0: Do you think that happens our our stereotyped view of rock you know and and heavy metal various forms of of music in that those genres. Is that there? You know, no redeeming value. I guess I'm pre- revealing some of my stereotypes, although I like I like a lot of music. Um, that you certainly wouldn't be led to to read literature through rock music.
1: I'm not sure it happens very often, but uh, it certainly happened in my case. Mm-hmm. So I can think of reading some John Dos Passos, which is alluded to in Rush, or some Hemingway, uh, Walt Whitman, even. The essayist Francis Bacon, I mentioned previously, has a line that's uh, used in a Rush song, so they may be an exception to the rule.
0: Yeah, so could, I don't really be.
1: dispute the rule. <laughs>
0: yeah. Right. I wonder. Um, uh, do you have Do you have a passage from Montaigne you could read us? This is uh, This is still influential, um, at least for essayists, Some 400 years after he, after he wrote.
1: Right. Yeah, he is chock full of great lines and great passages. And um, one of my favorite essays of his is called Of Practice. And this one actually has a narrative moment that uh, gave rise to it. And that is he was riding his horse and was knocked from the horse and taken up as, as if dead. And so he thought that would be good to write about because it's a way of practicing for death. He, he was like a good skeptic. He was interested in um, what happened after death, and this was his meditation on that. But he also got to writing about the writing process. So when he talks about his metaphysics, <clears throat> this is kind of meta-literary passage from that essay. Uh, so he says, This account of so trivial an event would be rather pointless were it not for the instruction that I have derived from it for myself. For in truth, in order to get used to the idea of death, I find there is nothing like coming close to it. Now, as Pliny says, each man is a good education to himself, provided he has the capacity to spy on himself from close up. What I write here is not my teaching, but my study. It is not a lesson for others, but for me. And yet, it should not be held against me if I publish what I write. What is useful to me may also by accident be useful to another. Moreover, I am not spoiling anything. I am only using what is mine. And if I play the fool, it is at my expense and without harm to anyone. For it is a folly that will die with me and will have no consequences. We have heard of only two or three ancients who opened up this road. And he means this road of talking about themselves, using their own lives, as uh, material for experiment, and even of them we cannot say whether their manner in the least resembled mine, since we know only their names. No one since has followed their lead. It is a thorny undertaking, and more so than it seems, to follow a movement so wandering as that of our mind, to penetrate the opaque depths of its innermost folds, to pick out and immobilize the innumerable flutterings that agitate it. And it is a new and extraordinary amusement which was withdraws us from the ordinary occupations of the world, yes, even from those most recommended.
0: Hmm. So that's a Michel de Montaigne. Um, right. And this is 400 years ago. What, what, what do your students think when you have them read Montaigne?
1: Well, I use a 1940s translation by an American, and that helps a little bit. And they do still struggle a bit because he's a bit archaic, the language is not quite their language, and a lot of the allusions that he makes or the examples that he brings in aren't familiar to them. But I encourage them to get past those kind of superficial difficulties and to still see what he's saying about studying the self and enjoy some of his kind of humorous turns of phrase, his apologetics about the form, and the way he models a kind of wandering that doesn't attempt to convince, though it could convince anyway, because he is re- he's exploring for the sake of himself, and he simply invites us to eavesdrop and listen along. So I think, oh, a good number of students are won over to his his way of speaking, his way of thinking.
0: And you uh, you co-edited a volume after Montaigne, uh, contemporary right. essays cover the essays. What were you? Uh, we were shooting for there?
1: So, speaking of the rock music influence, the model that I had in mind was uh, an album of cover songs, so what various artists would do to pay tribute to one of their forebears by re-recording their songs and putting their own spin on them. So that's the idea of the cover essay. In this case, uh, you can re-record a song and make it your own with the same lyrics and the same chord structures and so forth, but that's hard to do with an essay. So what we had people do instead was to take one of Montaigne's essay titles, borrow from it a quote that they would use as an epigraph to start their essay, and then write their own essay on the same topic. Uh, and they also followed it up with a coda that explained their process of engaging with the original. So we have, you know, 28 new essays on topics like lying and smells and sleep and praying, and all sorts of things that Montaigne covered.
0: Um, the most surprising to me in this book was Against Idleness, Kristen Radke, just because of the form. It's a, right. the, a graphic uh, essay, I guess you'd call it.
1: Right. So um, Montaigne was really interested in the question of idleness. He comes to it in a lot of essays, and he has one essay called Of Idleness and another called Against Idleness. And Kristen Radke is a young, young writer and uh, artist who does her essays in graphic form, and this suited uh, a larger project that she'd been interested in. So we were very pleased with you know, the variation of the form. I don't think Montaigne would have anticipated the graphic essay. And this one is about uh, not just idleness, but ruin of buildings and civilizations.
0: Let's take a break when we come back more with uh, Patrick Madden. He is associate professor at uh, Brigham Young University, he teaches uh, um, uh, teaches there. Um, and his uh, new collection of essays is called Sublime Physic. And uh, he's uh, trying to, um, uh, I'm trying to get to the quote here. He says uh, he's trying to more explicitly explore the way physical reality or nature can transcend itself or when filtered through a mind or a consciousness, can become an idea. We'll talk about this idea, this idea of uh, quotidian, this word. Uh, That was the title, quotidiana, of his first collection. In fact, there's a website uh, all about the essay essay with that title. More with uh, Patrick Madden following this break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. A business leader frustrated with his organization's inability to do
1: quality improvement recently called me and invited me to consult. Are you a specialist
0: in our industry, was his first question. No, I said. Then how can you help, he asked. I said this. Because in your workforce of 120
1: employees, you have 120 specialists in their area. They need better communication, better trust, and confidence that they can solve problems. I can help with that and then I will leave. Consultants come and go.
0: Employees stay and build up often untapped expertise that is the wellspring of excellence. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for joining me for Axis U Time. Tom Williams and my guest is BYU Professor Patrick Madden. In his new collection of essays, Sublime Physics, he seeks what is common and ennobling among seemingly disparate subjects, ruminating on midlife, time, family, forgiveness, loss, originality, a Canadian rock band, and more. And uh, we are spending the hour with uh, Patrick Madden. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upr.org. Patrick Madden, you, you hit upon this word as, as kind of a theme, quotidian. Uh, quotidiana is, uh, right. is the title of your website and uh, the title of the first collection. What's uh, Why quotidian?
1: Huh. There's a good background story. I... Uh served a mormon mission in uruguay in the early 90s and i heard a lot of people talk about this uh, the phrase la vida cotidiana everyday life and i like the word cotidiana because it seemed to have characteristics about opposite its meaning it seemed a very elegant and you know highfalutin type word but everyday mundane common was its meaning so i hoped for that word in english and when I returned, I looked for it in the Cs, because that's how it starts in Spanish, and I never found it. But I never gave up the quest, and a few years later, I happened to be just paging through the dictionary, and at the top of the Q, one of the Q pages, there it was, quotidian with a Q-U. And I thought, ah, here's the word I've been hoping for. And it's not a very common word, but as, ha- as often happens when you learn a new word. Once I learned it, I started actually seeing it in a lot of places, a lot of writing about essays because historically essays have been interested in exploring their everyday lives, not just extraordinary events that they can tell and show themselves to be victims or or victors, but um, things like Virginia Woolf's essay, The Death of the Moth, in which the plot of it is a moth dies. So not much really happens, but She uses that occasion to meditate on power of life. uh, uh, There's hints at human cruelty and uh, problems of the First World War and so forth. It's a very deep essay. So Quotidiana, sort of like Americana or another of these formations, is that it's a collection of those everyday things, events, people, experiences. And that's a common trait of personal essays, and I wanted my essays to focus on that. So I don't think it describes every essay, but it describes a whole lot of them and having that as a perspective kind of opened up my understanding about how essays work and how they're works of art even from things that we wouldn't think are inherently interesting or important.
0: Well perhaps an example is the first essay in the in the book Sublime Physics. It's titled Spit. Right. <laughs> and you, you you say you're a you're a spitter. And you go on to treat, uh, you know, more <laughs> for, weighty ideas. For good for, but, Ill, yeah. for <laughs> um, And, and uh, you, you end up in this, this essay uh, talking about an impactful experience in your life when you, you know, spit in a friend's face, and you, you talk about the reverberations of, of that. And then you, you go on to, to uh, quote James Hetfield from Fade to Black, I was me, but now he's gone. Um, The fact that we have, you know, multiple salves over time, I guess. Um, Right. And then there's an interesting uh, quote from uh, Alexander Smith. Um, uh, Let me just read this and then have to talk about this. Uh, This is on the writing of Essayist. An essayist who feeds his thoughts upon the segment of the world which surrounds him cannot avoid being an egotist, but when his egotism is not unpleasing... If it be without taint of boastfulness or self-sufficiency, of hungry vanity, the world will not press to uh, the charge home. Um, anyway, this idea of, of of how how we change over time this this idea of that James Hetfield said, uh, "I was me, but now he's gone."
1: Yeah, I think that's a common feeling people have when they look back at their lives and they think about the person they were as a child or the person who did things that they're now ashamed of. And that's the case in in point in this essay. Um, I reflect on the fact that this was a great friend of mine who uh, had started to drift apart. We drifted a little bit and <clears throat> I still valued his friendship, but I felt like I was being left alone. And through a series of you know, angry statements, one to the other, which I can't recall. Uh, I got so angry and frustrated that I I spit right at him, And I think immediately regretted it, but I certainly regretted it a lot more in the the time since then. Um, And as I say in the essay, even though we overcame that and remained friends, um, not long after, within a decade, uh, my friend John had passed away, Really unexpectedly, and so it's been. It's lingered with me how I mistreated him, um, and so of course I would hope, and I, I do truly think that that's no longer the way I am. That I wouldn't respond that way if the occasion happened again. But I think it's still valuable to <clears throat> reflect on the things we've done and to think about how we can and how we can change and how it's difficult to change. And that's a lot of what that essay ended up being about, is whether uh, we can truly be forgiven, whether we can truly repent and make changes in our lives. But I think that was a surprise to me that the essay turned that direction and became about that topic, because it started out rather frivolously about the act of spitting, like just superficially about spit. That's what got me started.
0: Your children seeing you spit, I guess, follow your example. You've been, <laughs> you've been spit in the face more than once, apparently, by your children. Just uh, right. they're little; yeah, they, they're, is, they, they don't have good aim.
1: It's happened again, again and again. When uh, walking into church in the morning, <laughs> I'll turn my head to the side and spit, and the child I'm carrying in my arms does the same, but uh, hits me right in the face.
0: <laughs> I want to read this. Uh, this is just a quotation from you from another interview say you say i really think that each person's best self is an essayist we may not engage in this part of our being as often as we should we may have buried away our curiosity in favor of a rushing uh, headlong into the frantic system of 21st century life but at times we all stop our heedless getting and think joyous thoughts don't we this idea that uh, each person's best self is an essayist you you believe that
1: i, I do i don't think people may know that but uh the ideal essayist is a person who uh, takes life joyously, thinks on the way things are going, makes connections and associations, uh, tries to kind of see that silver lining even in difficult experiences, uh, can understand the uses we can get from the difficulties that we face, um, before acting, um, all sorts of good qualities, I think, are concurrent with being an essayist.
0: Mm. Kind of a related idea, you write in one of your essays about the selves that we present to the world, and that in an essay, the I is the real you. It's also, a, I guess, a construct of you That's the you're putting your best foot forward, and it, maybe it's not really you. And and this this idea that uh, can we ever really know each other? We we present faces to the world,
1: right? So yeah, uh, that's another common theoretical area that uh, writers especially and readers are thinking about constantly. Uh, sometimes we come to a first person bit of literature and we think that we're reading exactly the person who wrote it right and the ideal in an essay is that the writer represents him or herself truly and accurately but um, completely is beyond our possibilities right because we can never be fully represented by words that we uh, share we're always translating ourselves in that uh, same montana essay i was reading from earlier he talks about Um, He says, there's no description equal in difficulty or certainly in usefulness than the description of oneself. Even so, one must spruce up. Even so, one must present oneself in an orderly arrangement if one would go out in public. I am constantly adorning myself, for I am constantly describing myself. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he's portraying himself falsely or, in general, the essays portray themselves falsely, but that... Um, we only have a certain number of words and we're focusing on particular aspects of our existence and our thinking. And it is natural and forgivable to uh, most of the time present oneself in the best light. You know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't always happen, but certainly the essay itself is a revised version of what one Chooses to convey, and uh, that revision would at least be, you know, written clearly and properly. And even if uh, one is confessional and revealing aspects of the self that are not, uh, not the best side of oneself, there's a kind of inherent forgiveness to that because the SS chose to share those details. Mm.
0: I want to read this, uh, use this as an epigraph uh, at the beginning of your essay, On Being Recognized. This is Montaigne. He says, In modeling this figure upon myself, I have had to fashion and compose myself so often to bring myself out that the model itself has, to some extent, grown firm and taken shape. Painting myself for others, I have painted my inward self with colors clearer than my original ones. I have no more made my book than my book has made me, a book consubstantial with its author. That's interesting. The, the process of uh, describing ourselves, presenting ourselves, writing through ourselves, we make ourselves.
1: Yeah, and I think we do that even if we don't write ourselves. We make ourselves within contexts at our work or within our family or in social situations. <clears throat> and so it really complicates the, the notion of a core true self. And I think Montaigne was on to that, too. He talked about being different one day from the next. He says, uh, constancy is nothing more than a languid rocking to and fro. So he saw the fluctuations in self depending on mood or health or situation. And uh, sometimes we don't recognize that, not just writers again, just anybody, how we are different in different contexts. And sometimes we can be, you know, vastly different and betray ourselves. Um, But most of the time, we're just languidly rocking to and fro, depending on what the situation calls for.
0: So the title, On Being Recognized, I suppose, could could apply to, you know, recognizing ourselves in a certain way. Uh, I wonder... I hope so. Yeah. I wonder, could you tell me the story about... uh, meaning Eddie money,
1: this is in this essay. uh, I had written this essay, and I felt that it was done. It was a little bit about personal experience of being recognized, but primarily about thinking uh, how we create personas for ourselves. And I had ended with this story about an essayist, Louise Imogen Guinea, who... uh, in the 1890s, was pickpocketed and gave chase to the pickpocket only to be confused by several other street urchins who ran out and uh, changed paths and ran away in different directions. So she wrote that essay, I felt, um, not out of her sadness and loss, because she had lost some money, but in celebration of the trick that had been played on her by this pickpocket and his friends. And I thought that writing had, in a sense, made her. Um, she could have been down and sad about it, but she chose to be uh, interested in, in the technique of the, of the pickpockets. But then I happened to be coming back from a conference from Chicago and got a lucky upgrade to first class and was sitting next to a fellow who looked like he might be someone important, had kind of shoulder-length gray hair, older fellow, and I I kept trying to glance at him wondering, who is this guy? And pretty early in the fight, though, when they told us to turn off all our electronic devices, I glanced down at his iPod when he, he was listening to some music, and he was listening to some Eddie Money music. And then he swiped it off and change it to Led Zeppelin. And I thought, he looks kind of like Eddie Money. And when they came to take a a drink order, he sounded like what Eddie Money might sound like. But I spent the entirety of the flight not wanting to bother him or brush the subject, but I was writing my essay at the time. So I I was writing about this experience of possibly sitting next to Eddie Money. And uh, at the end of the flight, when we landed in Salt Lake City, I decided I would. I would have to go for it. I couldn't leave this unresolved, so I asked him um, if he was Eddie Money. Oh, one thing that happened before that is when we landed, he made a phone call and uh, to whoever he spoke to, he said, hey, this is Eddie. And I thought it has to be him then because how could a guy who looks and sounds like Eddie Money be named Eddie but not be Eddie Money? <laughs> so we had a very brief conversation uh, as we walked out of the plane through the jetway and then into the um, airport terminal, he was heading on to California and I was heading home. And our conversation was very superficial, a bit stilted. He was he was kind and generous, but <clears throat> I was a bit clunky and tripping over myself. And I thought about how um, I, I acted just like anybody would. So. There, there was nothing deep or significant about our interactions, and I was essentially um, anonymous. So that was a kind of return to I, I'd begun the essay talking about myself being recognized by a, a bookstore clerk, and the end of the essay is a return to complete anonymity.
0: Yeah, and uh, it, perhaps many of us go you know go alternate back and forth. Um, you you have funny line about that encounter with the bookstore clerk that essayists aren't aren't in a whole lot of danger of being recognized, but you were typically not. Point. I think yeah.
1: I think in uh, in the world there's a fixed sum of money and recognition afforded to all the essayists but uh 90 some percent of it goes to david sedaris and the rest of us toil in obscurity
0: <laughs> david sedaris is sucking up all of the the fame and the and the money <laughs> uh, and good, for him. That's yeah, fine. good for him that's right yeah um i wonder uh before we go to break uh, i wonder if you have a, a passage from one of your essays that you'd like to read it for us
1: yeah i'd be glad to um I'll shift gears and share a bit from the third essay in the book called Entering and Breaking. The the story of that is my two young sons uh, went missing for what totaled a period of two hours. And of course we didn't know that at the time and we were frantic eventually thinking that they were really gone. Um, And I decided to write about that as not just the story itself but an intersection with some concepts from physics about uh, entangled particles, essentially. So I'll read a passage from the beginning, near the beginning of that essay. Knowing that these words will fail to convey even the remotest measure of the lived experience, I will cut the tension here to let you know the outcome. The boys were found. I ask you not to sympathize or to enter the mind space I inhabited then, but to think with me now, at a distance. For instance, let us take for a moment one sideways path that I have considered in the aftermath. There was a time only four years ago when I thought four children was plenty. Karina and I had matched our parents' output, had reached a reasonable return on our marital investment. Our car, a minivan, allowed us to travel together to Yellowstone or to the grocery store. Our house was comfortable, with the three girls sharing a large bedroom and their older brother occupying his own room across the hall. But the births of Marcos and James were the most irreversible of irreversible processes. Though they'd existed for only a fraction of my life, they'd inserted themselves into my consciousness so that they seem to have existed always. Their lives are so entangled with my own that I feel as if without them I am not. Though I had been content with a quartet, there was no going back to four children without destroying me.
0: Mm, that's uh, a, a, based on a what it must have been a, a very traumatic experience. Yeah, very and, much. And you do bring in physics uh, as well, like kind of a, bringing in your your first love, as it were. Um, let's right. let's take another break when we come back. More with uh, Patrick Madden. We're talking about his new collection of essays, Sublime Physic*. Patrick Madden teaches at uh, Brigham Young University. His previous uh, book is Quotidiana. Quotidiana is the website. You can learn a lot more about the essay, and there are a lot of essays there as well. Um, and we have him for the hour. Another segment uh, coming up. Uh, I want to talk in the next uh, segment about time. Here's a, here's a quotation from Patrick Madden. All of life comes down to time. The things we do to fill it may bring us joy or sorrow, may leave an imprint on memory or meld into our general perceptions or flow off into oblivion. More following the break. Tune in for Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. Coming up, the ethics of international debt. Many developing countries are faced with huge debts that they're unable to pay. Who's responsible, the debtors or the creditors? Well, who's ever responsible? It's usually the poor who end up paying the price. Isn't there a more ethical way of solving the debt crisis? The ethics of debt. Next time on Philosophy Talk. Wake up with Philosophy Talk, Tuesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Renewable energy is gaining momentum across the country. But what are your options? You've read about windmills, you've heard about solar panels, but how do you take the next step? Utah Public Radio wants to hear from you. For example, with a small family living in a little outdated apartment in rural Utah, how can you convert to clean energy? Visit upr.org backslash upin, become a source with the Utah Public Insight Network, and submit your questions about renewable energy to UPR. And tell us, what do you want to know? Thanks for listening to Utah. My guest for the hour is Associate Professor at Brigham Young University, uh, Patrick Madden. Uh, His new collection of essays is called Sublime Physic, and he is co-editor previously of a collection called After Montaigne, Contemporary Essays Cover the Essays. Uh, Previous volume is called Quotidiana, and that is the website. You can find essays, a lot about the essay at there, quotidiana.org. Uh, you can join this uh, conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Um, Patrick Madden, um, th- this quotation that I uh, that I read before the uh, the break, I'll just repeat it. All of life comes down to time. Things we do to fill it may bring us joy or sorrow, may leave an imprint on memory or meld into our general perceptions or flow off into oblivion. And then this, uh, another quotation the fleeting moments that make up my made up my life seem to stretch before me to a point so distant it may as well have been uh, the edge of the universe. So our perceptions right. of, of time, and and we do, I think we don't pay attention to it as much as perhaps you you say we we should. We just we just get busy.
1: Well, I think uh, a lot of life we have to live without paying too close attention to time in order to get ourselves from here to there. My life is typically so busy and crowded by tasks and obligations that I don't have much time to reflect. But that's one of the great uh, benefits or joys of writing essays is it gives me or even forces me to have that time to reflect and to think about the way everything is flowing past, sometimes at a leisurely pace, but more often... Uh, at a fast and furious pace that I wish I could slow down and know I, that I can't. But I think writing essays sometimes can allow me to achieve a pause, even if, you know, the process itself is taking time. I can still, you know, have a moment to escape from everything else that's going on around me and focus my, my brain on, things that are of more importance to me, and then I can leave behind also a record of that that exists in a way outside of time because it can be returned to, accessed by readers uh, far away from me, in distance, and in, and in time as well.
0: You've, uh, you've said that you feel like you connect with, I guess, you know, long-dead writers or, or distant writers. Uh, through their writing, especially through the essay? Why especially through essay?
1: It feels like essayists are attempting to convey not just what they lived, but what they thought about it, so it feels like um, they've put more of their souls in what they've written. Um, Montaigne begins his essay collection with a note to the reader, and one of his purposes, he says, is that when his friends and family have lost him, once he's dead, they can recover him through what he's written. So he was, in a, in a way, attempting to transfer himself into the text. And I'm not as exhaustive as Montaigne was, but I do attempt to do much the same thing uh, thematically and topically So on a particular subject. I am uh, all there in that essay, or at least the revised version of me, the, the improved version of me is there. Um, and I feel like a lot of the great essays from the past that I read, I have no physical access to them, but I feel as if uh, they could be my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, as William Hazlitt has said of Montaigne, that Montaigne was the first writer to write as if he's inviting you behind the curtain to sit down by beside the fire in gown and slippers and have a conversation with him. And so from that time forward, the last four hundred years, many, many, maybe most of these essayists are following in those footsteps and trying to create an environment in their writing where they can be casual, comfortable, conversational and present what seems like, what feels like, their whole selves to readers.
0: You uh, you say in another uh, interview, you are big on offering influences to your students, and you go on to say creation is rearrangement. And you talk about this in in an essay in, in uh, Sublime Physics called Independent Redundancy. Uh, right. And you talk about plagiarism and self-plagiarism, which is interesting. And uh, you get into, again, into music, Uh, you know, instances where musicians sue other musicians, and and how do you parse out what's original and and what's not?
1: Right. And I don't know if I have a real conclusion on the topic, but I do think that our definition of originality, what we tend to think of, is a little bit too simplistic. And instead, we should think in terms of uh, rearrangement of pre-existing materials, When it comes to music, um, there are only a certain number of notes. And even if you uh, go up and down octaves, you're still repeating those same do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do notes. And within a particular cultural and timely context, we're limited even more by the conventions, uh, internalized conventions, of a particular genre of music. Mine, my genre of choice is rock and roll. So <clears throat> the, the essay began thinking about uh, the case in which George Harrison was sued because his song My Sweet Lord sounded very much like He's So Fine by the Chiffons. And the rights holder to that song was a, a large music corporation, and they thought they could get a lot of money because he's a former Beatle, and this was his first solo album. He was selling millions and millions of copies. And they ended up winning in court because the melodies, the vocal melodies are so similar. But I kind of disagree with that result. And so I I went through many more examples from music and from writing of um, deep influence. (laughs) I should say that in that case, Harrison admitted to knowing the Chiffon song, but he... Figured that he had only uh, subconsciously plagiarized. He didn't set out intentionally to copy their same song, and I believe him. I guess.
0: By the way, just just very parenthetical. I I learned from your that essay that Helen Keller was accused of plagiarism. A traumatic event in in her life.
1: Right. So, Keller, uh, who was blind and deaf, but had books read to her, she created a uh, kind of fairy tale that seemed very much like another, and it would seem as if she perhaps had internalized and memorized whole passages from that book. It was a book, um, let's see, by Margaret Canby called "Birdie and His Fairy Friends," and. <clears throat> Although she didn't say that she had a distinct memory of having been read that book, uh, scholars assume that somebody had read that book to her. And her memory was such that, you know, she remembered whole phrases from it, but didn't remember that she was remembering it from this other source. And so when she wrote uh, a story, it seemed to copy that other birdie and his fairy friends much too closely. But uh, ultimately, the author, uh, Margaret Canby, said that uh, she preferred Keller's version to her own. So it wasn't mm-hmm. a big uh, lawsuit or anything like that.
0: Yeah, good good result for Helen Keller. By the way, we have this right. email. Uh, you can email us to upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We have this from Steve. He says... In order to be an essay, must the author be intrinsic to the subject, a la montaigne, or do the scientific, political, and philosophical thought pieces by people such as Descartes, or Bacon, or Locke, or Hume qualify too? So, um,
1: the person, the personal needn't be inherent to the subject, I don't think. There are a number of essayists who are, oh, relatively absent in terms of what they narrate, what they tell about their own lives. They they sometimes don't say anything about their own lives. But I think the personality of the author is essential so that um, the voice that we are receiving the ideas through uh, seems to be alive and and vibrant to us. So um, sometimes I think Descartes is quite essayistic, though he had his quarrels with Montaigne. He's uh, a bit younger. And um, he references Montaigne's essays quite a bit in the pensées, and he's often arguing against them. Sometimes he says because he recognizes himself in them. Um, I've read uh, some of David Hume's work, which seems quite essayistic. um, But some of these writers, it seems, are a bit anti essayistic in that they're attempting to establish systems of thought and presenting them to others. And Montaigne repeatedly says that he is not interested in instructing others. You know, these are the things that he believes, not what is to be believed. And so I think there's kind of a subtle but fundamental difference between those writings. Francis Bacon wrote essays. He had a collection that he accrued throughout throughout his life. But the subtitle for his essays are Counsels, Moral, Religious, and Civil. So he very much saw that his writings were to counsel others. So he's taking a very different approach from what Montaigne was doing. Um, Maybe in the end, an essay is what an essayist calls his or her writings. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So if if a writer wants to call their work essays, then we should allow that that is... That, what they've written are essays, even if they challenge the ways that Montaigne was doing it.
0: We just have about a minute left. I want to uh, bring to, I guess, modern media. So you mentioned David Sedaris, and I'm wondering about, you know, radio essays, blogs. D- does the form change the the, the essay? Do you, what do you think about uh, essays on, on those media? Uh,
1: I love the proliferation of venues or, or vehicles for essays. So I, I think there are many radio essays, blog essays. Um, there's a democratization of publishing. You don't need a an established publisher that can, you know, advertise your book to millions. You can publish your own essays. <clears throat> and it doesn't mean necessarily that all blog posts are essays or essayistic or all radio work is essayistic or films and things like that, but... Uh, It gets really thorny, but for me, the basic question that I approach things with, if I'm trying to think generically, what am I viewing, hearing, reading here? I just turn essay into a verb, and I ask, what is this essaying? What is it attempting to do? And that kind of gets at the humility of approach, uh, the introspection of the piece, the associative, Uh, meandering nature of it and all all sorts of things, and it can get quite big and complicated, but I still bring it back to that one question. What is this essaying? And if I feel that it is experimenting, attempting, trying something out, then I'm usually inclined to think, yes, this is an essay.
0: Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, The book is Sublime Physics. The author is Patrick Madden. The website is quotidiana.org. Patrick Madden, thank you. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, hd one Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. This is Utah Public Radio.